clear understanding of it, and that I would uh, not only be able to speak outwardly and, and uh, to the heart or to the mind, but that your Holy Spirit will speak to the heart uh, through the truth of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Psalm 17, we began last week. We got down just touching on verse number four. We're going to take time to read those first four verses. Not going to reteach them, but, uh, but I will give just a real quick synopsis of what they cover. Uh, verses one to four is the first section out of four sections of this psalm. It's a prayer uh, of the writer of this psalm for justice uh, over his oppressors. And uh, this is just uh, titled simply a prayer of David. Uh, it's just a prayer of his heart. And um, notice in verse 1, he says this, Hear the right, O Lord, attend unto my cry, give ear unto my prayer, that goeth not out of feigned lips. Let my sentence come forth from thy presence. Let thine eyes behold the things that are equal. Thou hast proved my heart, mine heart. Thou hast visited me in the night. Thou hast tried me and shalt find nothing. I am purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Concerning the works of man, by the word of thy lips, uh, I have kept me from the paths uh, of the destroyer. And so we find these, these first four verses are the part of David's prayer uh, for justice uh, against his oppressors, for God to provide justice not only for David, uh, but also in dealing with those that were his foes, those that were oppressing him. And uh, as we get... Uh, into the first couple of verses of this, um, David's cry is for God to be the great judge, the just judge, and to try not only those that are those that are opposing him, not only his foes, and to be just with them, but he's wanting God to be his judge. Uh, how often it seems that we uh, listen or give ear to criticism, uh, people that maybe oppress us, maybe that criticize us, and by giving ear to them and allowing them to affect the way we uh, feel, or maybe we get depressed or dejected, outcast, uh, because, or downcast because of uh, what we hear people say about us, can I tell you this? They're not our judge. They're not the ones that judge us. God is. And so it doesn't do us well when people speak ill of us for doing right uh, to become dejected or uh, to become sorrowful that and David's prayer, as he gets into verses 1 and 2, is, Lord, I want you to be my just judge. I want you to judge me. Notice in verse 2 he says this, let my sentence come forth from thy presence. In other words, if I'm going to receive a sentence for what I'm doing in my life, I want it to be from you. I trust your judgment, God. And that ought to be the prayer of our lips. And we said last week that this is a prayer that is, uh, uh, you, you need to make certain of a right heart. When you pray a prayer like this, uh, you need to be, and, and I think there's no substitute for holy living and a clean conscience because it allows us to come to God and say, God, whatever men may say about me, I don't care. I only care about what your judgment is on my life. Uh, but we better make sure we have a clean life when we pray a prayer like that because we mentioned last week that while men may not always see all of the things in our heart or our lives, when we come to God and ask Him to judge our hearts, our hearts are laid bare before Him. There's nothing hid from Him. And so the importance of not only living right outwardly when we're around other people 
And, and I'll tell you this, I, I, I went to Bible college uh, right out of high school. I've lived a lot of years in ministry. I've been in a lot of churches. I've been in a lot of Bible conferences. And there is an awful lot of pressure and emphasis uh, for people to be something outwardly. And, boy, you need to act this way. You need to be this way outwardly. And, and those things ought be in our lives. But we, I, I fear sometimes that we focus on the outer shell, uh, on the outer garment, if you will. And we do not lay bare our hearts to the Lord and ask the Lord to judge us. And anybody can put on an outward exterior of being a good Christian. And I fear that sometimes when we emphasize this so much that we don't deal enough with the heart of the issue. Uh, it's not that we shouldn't teach on these things. Uh, there certainly uh, is a lot of validity in Scripture that we teach and preach about righteousness and holy living and being separated. And certainly we need to understand and we need to know those things. But we need to be careful that we do not become pharisaical, that we are not like the Pharisees who whitewash the outside of the cup or the sepulcher and then the inside of it being uh, rotten. And so David's cry, David's prayer is, Lord, I want you to be my judge. And the reason I want you to be my judge, Lord, is because you know my heart. You know my heart. You know the inside. And verse 3 says, Thou hast proved my heart. Thou hast visited me in the night. In other words, David was saying, Lord, you don't just know how I am in public and when I'm around people. You know where exactly how I am even in the quietness of the night. When no one else can see, when no one else is around, you, you see. You visited me during those times. Thou hast tried me and shall find nothing. And then he makes this statement, I am purposed uh, that my mouth shall not transgress. And I think there ought to be some things that as God's people we purpose in our hearts. Um, later on in the Psalms, the psalmist says, I made a covenant with my eyes uh, that I would not defile them. Those I, I was not set no wicked thing before my eyes. And the idea that uh, he purposed in his heart. Here he says, I'm purposing that I'm not going to sin with my lips, with my mouth. And, of course, James, we said last week, mentions that that's a difficult one. In fact, he says if we can tame the tongue, uh, if we can tame the, the lips, that we are able to, to tame the whole body because it's such a powerful, powerful thing uh, in the Christian life. And so David makes it purposeful in his life. If you and I were to make that commitment to the Lord... How much would it change, not just what we say, but even how we say it? All of a sudden, our lips would not be very critical, would they? They would not pass along gossip, and they would not be unkind or ungracious. It would change the way we speak. If we were to purpose in our hearts that we would not sin with our mouths, we would not transgress with them. It would change the way we talk. And, and I'm talking about even people that are, are, are our kind of folks. Uh, I'm amazed at how many times people that uh, genuinely, I believe, do love the Lord with a lot of their heart or most of their heart, or maybe even all of their heart. They do have a desire for righteous living. They do have a desire to be separated. They do have a desire to come to a, a doctrinally sound church and to have the Word of God on their laps and to read it and to study it and to uh, have a, a personal walk with God. It's amazing to me how often we sin with our lips. Uh, we grieve, I believe, many times the Holy Spirit. In not, again, not just what we say, but even in how we say it. There ought to be a graciousness to it. 
And um, he makes a statement here that he's going to purpose it with his mouth. Now, put yourself in David's position here. He's got foes that are coming against him. They're slandering him. They're speaking evil against him. They're judging him for things. And David's, you know the natural instinct we have. The natural instinct we have is to become very defensive, to come out and say, you may be talking about me that way, but look at your own life. And we start talking about somebody else and trying to bring them down. And this is where David is really emulating the example the Lord Jesus set. When he was accused before Pilate, when he was going through the judgment of the time before his crucifixion, the Bible says he was silent. He didn't answer his accusers. And David saying this, well, it doesn't matter what they say against me. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. I'm going to seal my lips. I'm not going to sin with my lips. I'm not going to transgress with my mouth. Verse 4, he says, concerning the works of men, by the word of thy lips, and this is where we ended last week, by the word of thy lips I have kept me from the paths of, <coughs> excuse me, of the destroyer. And here, <coughs> David's not talking about the day that we get to heaven and we're going to be perfect. He's speaking about this side of heaven. He's talking about concerning the works of men, uh, that he's going to uh, allow God's words to keep him from transgressing. When we get saved, the Bible says that we are quickened. The word quickened means to be made alive. That's where we get the term born again or made alive again in Christ. Something is that used to be dead. We used to be dead, the Bible says in the book of Romans, in our trespasses and sin. But now we're alive unto God. And so the Holy Spirit quickens us. He makes something alive in us. And uh, He does this uh, as a work of salvation. And uh, by doing so, He makes the way of the Christian life, or we would call it the path, or as Paul referred to it, the race that is set before us, or the writer of Hebrews said that, uh, said the race that is set before us. The Holy Spirit is the one that makes that way plain. He makes it clear for us. And then He puts into us a desire to follow the things of the Lord and to keep the paths that God gives us. This is all the work of the Holy Spirit of God. And uh, as we get to uh, verse number 4, he speaks about these words that the Bible gives us. We consider it the Word of God as being that which keeps us from the path of the destroyer. And the Holy Spirit does this work in us uh, by using the Word of God to convict our hearts and uh, to, to make plain and make clear what we should do. If God's grace, working in harmony with His Word, did not actively do its work in us daily, we would soon imitate the worst of humanity. Now, this was said by Charles Spurgeon a number of years ago. I'm going to read it one more time. If God's grace, working in harmony with His Word, did not actively do its work in us daily, we would soon imitate the work of humanity. It's God's Word that, that does the sanctifying work in our lives. It is a purging work. It's a, clear, a, a cleansing work. And the more we read Scripture, the more we will be cleansed inwardly. And I would say then this, the less that we read Scripture, the less that we are cleansed spiritually. God uses the work of the Holy Spirit uh, combined with His Word to do this, this cleaning, this work that needs to be done in each of our lives. And by the way, uh, I, Lord willing, next hour, if, if God doesn't change the message, we're going to be looking at a, a part of the message that's going to be dealing 
uh, with, with a little bit of this idea that sometimes we put a lot of effort into pursuing what we know we're supposed to be outwardly rather than resting in the transforming work that God has done inwardly. Over and over in our Bibles, it speaks of these things that should be on the outside of a Christian as being the fruit. The thing that is produced when the inside is what it should be. I've, I've spent a lot of my ministry over the years preaching and, 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 and emphasizing the importance of loving God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. And the reason I do that is, first of all, it's the greatest commandment in Scripture. And secondly, I believe that through that mindset, that idea of loving Him with all of our heart, it becomes a very strong motivation to be obedient to Him. And I think that that obedience motivated by love is some of the sweetest obedience there is. Obedience by duty we do because it's right. But it's not as joyous to us. It's not... It's not as enjoyable to us as obeying by love. And obeying because we love Him and because we don't want to displease Him. And Lord willing, we'll be looking at some of that a little bit next hour. Uh, and so I don't want to preach next hour's message in Sunday school. But I want to say this. Uh, one of the commentators that I read wrote this. He said, That heavenly book, which lies neglected on many a shelf, is the only guide for those who would avoid the enticing and entangling mazes of sin. And it is the best means of preserving the youthful pilgrim from ever treading those dangerous ways. He must follow the one or the other, the book of life or the way of death, the word of the Holy Spirit or the suggestion of the evil spirit. We're going to choose one or the other. One is going to lead us to sin, the other is going to keep us from sin. And this is what Psalm, the psalmist is saying in verse 4. Concerning the works of men, by the word of thy lips I have kept me from the paths of the destroyer. Verse number 5. He says, Hold up my goings in thy paths that my footsteps slip not. A couple of weeks ago uh, we, we preached on the idea of standing in the way and asking and, uh, and following the old paths. Um, and the idea of doing the things that are right. <coughs> and uh, there's, uh, it's interesting that uh, over time there's been great philosophers and men that the world looks up to and say these are great thinkers, these are great minds, that have tried to put into a nutshell the morality of man. And Plato said this to one of his disciples. He said, when men speak ill of thee, live so that no one will believe them. Uh, that was a great and profound statement. When men speak ill of thee, live so that no one will believe them. The Bible teaches us that too. The Bible teaches us that we ought to live above reproach. That if we're going to suffer, we ought to suffer for right, not for doing wrong. The problem with Plato and the problem with the philosophy of men coming up with principles like this is they don't tell us how to accomplish it, whereas the Bible does. I'm thankful for God's Word because not only does it tell us that we ought to live above reproach, it goes further and it tells us how we're to accomplish those things. 
And so it gives us some instruction in these areas. And this is what David, I think, is, holding, is speaking of here. When he says, hold up my goings in thy paths, that my footsteps slip not. He just spoke of uh, avoiding uh, following the paths of the destroyer by the words of God, the word that God gave to him. And then he says, hold up my goings in thy paths, that my footsteps slip not. Keep me steadfast in these things. And uh, I hope that our footsteps would not ever slip. Isn't it a shame that among God's people we have to pray such a prayer? Lord, help my footsteps not to slip. Slip from what? Slip from your truth, Lord. Well, wait a minute. Aren't we children of God? Don't we love His truth? Don't we long for His truth? Don't we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Why should we have to pray such a prayer? Why should it ever be known among God's children, among God's people, that our feet slip from His ways? That we depart from His Word? Can I tell you that the reason that we do such things is because the old nature is still with us. The old man is still enticing us. The enticements of this world still draw at our hearts. And the more that we give place to them, the more it draws us. And so we have to pray as the psalmist did. Lord, help my footsteps to slip not. Somebody said this. He said, yes, the road is good, but our feet are evil. And therefore slip. Even on the king's highway. Who wonders if carnal men slide and fall in ways of their own choosing. Which like the veil of Sinem are full of deadly slime pits. One may trip over an ordinance as well as over a temptation. Even though the road is good, our feet are evil. The old nature is still with us. And so we must praise the psalmist did. Lord, help me. That my footsteps slip not. Give me the strength. Character, give me the stamina. Help me to have a heart that is steadfast and unmovable. That I slip not. Paul, I believe it was, wrote it this way. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Paul, one of the greatest Christians we know, wrote more scripture in the New Testament than any other writer was the one who said, the things that I know I should do, he said, I don't. The things I know I'm not supposed to do, he said, I do those things. He said, I have not attained. In the early part of Paul's ministry, as he would write, oftentimes he would say, Paul, a sinner, or he'd say, I'm a sinner. As he got further in ministry and towards the middle of his ministry, in one of his letters, he said, I am the great sinner, a great sinner. And in the very end of his ministries, he wrote one of the last epistles he was ever going to write. He said, I am the chiefest of sinners. What we gain from this is not that the closer you get to the Lord, the more you sin. What we gain from it is this, that the closer we get to the Lord, the more we see our sinful condition. And even though God had done a sanctifying work in Paul's life, 
Even though God had already done a transforming work in his heart and it cleaned up so much of the outside of the vessel of the Apostle Paul's life, Paul could look at himself and say, Oh, wretched man that I am. The chiefest of sinners. The psalmist understood this. The man after God's own heart could pray but this. Hold up my goings and my paths that my footsteps slip not. Wait a minute, David. Aren't you the man after God's own heart? Yes. But there's one thing David knew, and that was this. That no matter how much the heart longs for the Lord, and no matter how good and righteous and holy the way may be, our feet are clay. Our feet are evil. They are prone to follow after the flesh. And if we're going to have victory in the Christian life, it's going to be by praying and asking for God's strength to keep us from evil. In verse 6, and I just want to mention and refresh your mind, in verses 1 to 4, he's praying for justice, for God's justice on his life and on the lives of those who are his foes. In the next section that he speaks of here, which is verses 5, let me make sure I got it right, 5 and 6. Uh, in verses 5 and 6, what he's praying for is, Lord, while I'm under this oppression, while I'm going through this valley, while my foes are attacking me, help me to respond rightly. Help me to be righteous in the way I respond, in the way I live while this is going on. And so in verse 5, he says, Hold up my goings in thy paths that my footsteps slip not. I have called upon thee, for thou wilt hear me, O God. Incline thine ear unto me and hear my speech. He has the utmost confidence in being able to come to the throne of God. And I want to clarify this. I want to try to give, and we'll probably end here this week. I want to try to clarify this. In the book of Hebrews, the Bible says that we should come boldly to the throne of grace. That we may find help in time of trouble. Grace in time of trouble. And yes, there is the ability, once we get saved... We are now reconciled to God. We can come into the very throne room of God. We can speak one-on-one with the God of the universe, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Almighty, the Everlasting One, the Great I Am. We get to talk with Him. Uh, there's times, people think, uh, uh, several years ago, uh, my kids and I, we went to, uh, not, not that I want to be political, but we went to a Trump rally. We got a chance to be close to, you know, within 10, 15, 20 feet or so of, of Donald Trump. And I was amazed at the throngs of people that showed up and stood in cold weather and rain coming down just to have a chance to see him from a distance and maybe not even talk to him. And the desire to be around him because he's a well-known person. He's a famous person. He's beginning to be a presidential candidate. And the idea that there was such a draw of people <clears throat> to long for that, and they went, sometimes driving for hours, standing in poor weather, in bad rain, with just the hope of getting a glimpse <laughs> excuse me, getting a glimpse of him. Do you realize that today you and I have the very <clears throat> excuse me, the opportunity to come into the very presence of God Himself. And to speak with Him and to have His attention focused on our praying and our time with Him. We have that ability. And yet we, we oftentimes would have a greater desire, this side of heaven, to go 
And, and we would drive hours to have an opportunity, not even to speak with somebody, but to see him from a distance, to hear him speak, to stand in, in cold weather and rainy weather for hours outside the pavilion because we couldn't even get in. And then I wonder, I get an opportunity anytime I want to, anywhere I want to, to come into the very presence of God Himself and speak, speak with Him. And yet how little we often take advantage of this. In fact, there, it's amazing to me how there are such small things that will distract us and keep us from that. What an amazing thought that we get the privilege to come into His presence. I want to make the distinction here because I don't want us to get to this (coughs) mindset. (coughs) Excuse me. I don't want us to get into this mindset that a lot of the Word of Faith and the New Apostolic Reformation folks out here have where they feel that they have authority over God. They tend to humanize God. They tend to deify man. And while we are certainly told that we can come to His throne with boldness, may I say it ought always be done, even though it's boldly, it ought always be done with reverence. It ought always be done without pride and without arrogance. And it ought always be done with a sense of humility. That but for the grace of God, And the sacrificial work of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary, we would not have this opportunity. We don't get to come into God's presence because we're something. We get to come into God's presence because He did a great work on Calvary. And He says, I have called upon thee, for thou wilt hear me, O God. There's a a confidence that David has, but don't mistake that for an arrogance. I think we can clearly see through the prayers that David prays and and the way that he approaches God in these psalms that there, no doubt, is a sense of humility. That while there's a confidence that he can approach to God, there's a humility there. He says, O God, incline thine ear unto me and hear my speech. Not of arrogance, not of haughtiness, but certainly with confidence. Certainly with the fact that we have the privilege to come to Him in prayer. And here he repeats the full prayer that he had in the very beginning of the psalm. That he has full assurance of God's hearing his prayer. The first four verses he prays for justice. Not only for himself in God's sight, but also for his foes. In the second section of this, in verses 5 and 6, we find David is praying to God, saying, Lord, while I'm going through this valley... Help me to behave myself rightly. Give me the strength. Don't let my feet slip. And I would say this, that in time of trouble, in time of conflict, may it be the prayer of our hearts, Lord, help me to behave myself as your child. Help me to to act and to respond appropriately. The Bible tells us that we are ambassadors of Christ. We're His representatives here on earth. Somebody said it this way, there, some of us are the only Bible that some people will ever read. They'll never pick up a book, but they will look at our lives sometimes. May we learn to respond appropriately. 
Let's go ahead and be dismissed there. We'll pick up there next week and finish the psalm. Father, we're so thankful for Your Word. We pray that You'll bless it and use it in our lives. May it draw us closer to You. May it teach us in Your ways. And may we learn from it how we ought to be. And then, Lord, help us to be that.